Second Kings. All right. I was like, what is going on? I was about to duck for cover. Um, so we are going to be in Second Kings chapter 14 tonight. So you're more than welcome to open up there if you if you want to. If you don't, there's a there's a packet uh, packets on the stand in the back. They have all the verses that we're going to cover tonight, and you can follow along with us there. And as we make reference to verses, you can you can um, look at the verses there and follow along with us. So I want to remind you of where we are, just a, as a, a just as a way of reminder from last week. Remember. We were dealing with uh, Damascus, and Damascus is, uh, is, remember, a country just to the north of Israel, and they are um, uh, go by several names, Damascus, Syria, Aram. They go by many different names. You'll hear people called Arameans. That's because they're from that area. Uh, in fact, Abraham, a wandering Aramean, was my father, you know, he, eh, from that area. Anyway, so, um, so Hazael of Damascus, Syria, Aram, that area, Hazel was the king, and he was appointed by God to judge Israel. Israel was engaged in idolatry, and he gave uh, Israel into the hand of the Arameans, and specifically Hazel of Damascus. And Hazel of Damascus was just, he, he did his job, all right? He judged Israel successfully and continually was a thorn in their side, and he dies in 801, but... Um, may want to click on the screen there. I don't know if you can, there we go. He dies in 801 and his son takes over the throne and his son continues to be just as bad as he was and just continues to be a thorn in the side of Israel. And what gave uh, them the ability to really do this, obviously, is that there was no enemy for them. Uh, the Arameans, the Syrians, Damascus was just north of Israel, and there was nobody on the other side of them that was an enemy or had a strong military. So in the area, they had the strongest of the militaries. So with that in mind, you could just really go into the your neighbors, Israel in this case, and just pillage and plunder everything that they've got um, for free with, with little to no recourse. And so in the north, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, was on the throne. He was reigning, and Ben-Hadad obviously was continuing his uh, father's policies and was continuing to pick on Israel, if you will, and judge them, uh, and Yahweh was giving Israel to them. like That was part of their punishment. It was part of the judgment that, they, that he had set out from a long time before back in Elijah's day. And Jehoahaz actually goes and seeks and pleads the Lord to give them some relief, have mercy on us. And the Lord was gracious and kind, and he actually did. He had mercy on them. And the way it seems that he had mercy on them was that Assyria's army behind Aram became pretty strong. And started moving into Aram and Damascus and gave them an enemy at their back which caused them to have to sort of put down the weapons with Israel and turn around and fight uh, a war on the other side. And so with that being the case, that gave Israel some relief. And then also we saw last week the death of Elisha, uh, which is a huge, it was a huge deal in the story, right? Elisha is dead. And there is some question as Elisha passes well, who's going to watch after Israel now? Because 
Israel needs its protector, the prophet of among prophets, right? Elisha, the most powerful of all prophets. And what we see is that Yahweh is actually the protector of Israel, not Elisha. And it's Yahweh working through Elisha that gives them their protection. Elisha is in the ground. He's buried. His bones are in the grave. They are about to bury a dead guy, and Elisha's grave is there opened, and all of a sudden they get these marauding invaders from another army. They throw the man into the grave with Elisha. He touches the bones, and he walks out alive, and it's a testimony to the fact that the the Lord is actually still working in the northern kingdom, which is a great, uh, gives us great hope, but also not for long. (laughs) We're quickly encroaching upon a time of great disaster for the northern kingdom, where the northern kingdom is basically just going to come to a dead halt when Assyria comes up. But we still got about 80 years or so, not quite, but maybe 70 years or so before that happens. And that time is going to kind of fly by for us. Um, We're certainly not going to get there tonight, but we're in this sort of middle ground right now because I could have covered all of chapter 14 tonight, but that would have got us quickly into Jonah. And I really want to spend more time on Jonah, which will be next week. So at the end of chapter 14, we get Jonah being mentioned in the reign of, uh, of Jeroboam too, And so we want to spend some time on, Jer- on Jonah, especially because as you talk about the book of Jonah, one of the biggest questions that comes up amongst people my age is, that really happened? Do I really believe that a man was swallowed by a fish and was sitting in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights before he spit up on the ground and then went to uh, prophesy into uh, to Assyria. Well, I will, you know, just, just to touch on where we're going to go over the next couple of weeks is to say, you know, if it wasn't real, it sure does fit really well with the history for it not to be true, right? For it not to be literally true. So uh, it fits too well with the history for it not to be literally true. You understand? Yeah. It fits too well with the history. Jonah is going to show up on the scene at the end of uh, 1 Kings 14, which is not in relation to Assyria. It's not even in relation to a fish. It's in relation to Jeroboam 2. And so we're going to see him appear on the scene very briefly. And then we get an entire book with his name on it. And which fits really nicely with all the things going on with Assyria at the time, fits really nicely with um, some historical things, some archaeological things that we know about Assyria at the time, and which I think might be incredibly helpful to say, yeah, it's true. So um, anyway, that's where we'll be going for the next couple of weeks. So I wanted to stop short of that. So we're going to talk about Amaziah tonight. And the whole time is going to be spent on Amaziah because there's some interesting things that take place. We're going back to the south. So we went to the north last week. We're going now back to the southern kingdom, and we're going to be doing this a lot. So we're going to be going back and forth, and we're going to Amaziah tonight. Now, after Amaziah became, uh, oh, sorry, briefly before we get there, 
I want to remind you of something else we talked about last week. Remember a few important dates that you need to just drill into your head and just always remember when, when you think Old Testament history, this is a broad, very broad timeline of just three dates that are super duper important. Uh, they're not the only important dates, but they're the big ones. All right. 931, Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, takes over and begins doing foolish things, and the kingdom soon divides under Rehoboam, north and south. Now, there's no longer a united monarchy. There is a divided kingdom, all right? This is Israel under the divided kingdom from 931 on. We do that for about 200 years until we get to 722 when Assyria is going to march in and take captive the northern kingdom and haul them off to Assyria. Then we've got 586 where the same thing is going to happen in the south, but Babylon is going to do it this time. And so those three dates are incredibly important for uh, Jewish history, just screw those into your brain and just remember those dates. It's helpful then when we say right now we're in somewhere around 796 or so. That will help you kind of put in a timeline how close we're approaching to Assyria coming in and taking up the northern kingdom. Okay, now Amaziah takes the throne and becomes king of Judah. And remember, you've got Jehoahash on the throne in the northern kingdom and the Arameans, the city, the city of Damascus, the Syrians, have now been kind of put to the test by, by Assyria behind them. So Damascus now has an enemy right behind them to their backs that is Assyria. They're coming in and, and fighting. And so now Jehoahash doesn't have to deal a lot with, the, is, with Israel's army, with the northern kingdom. So now that the king of the north, Jehoahash, has some relief there. It seems that the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom now are primarily concerned with each other. So Judah's primary concern becomes the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom's primary concern becomes the southern kingdom. Obviously, this is not going to lead to good things. You know that. Um, and so it becomes a real major concern for Israel is how this southern kingdom is behaving. So here's how a lot of that comes to fruition. Amaziah, the son of Joash, uh, Joash of the south, not Joash of the north. All right, two, same name, but two different people. He comes to the, the throne of David in 796, and he reigns until 767. And he out, he's going to actually outlive the king of the north by 15 years. But um, he is a major concern for the king of the north. Look at 2 Kings 14, 1 to 6. In the second year of, Je of that is, that is uh, uh, Jehoash, we'll call him, Jehoash, the son of Jeho Jehoahaz, uh, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of, in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did all the things as Joash, his father, had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. 
He, but, uh, but he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor small children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Well, how kind of him, right? Um, so this is a common thing, actually, in all other countries, is if you have to die, your kids also have to die. In fact, your father and your mother also has to die. Um, you still see this actually today. Uh, North Korea, you just watch what they do, and this is basically how they handle things. Very Old Testament. Uh, if you have to die, all your kids have to die as well because they want to ensure that you didn't teach them anything that might cause them to raise up and have an insurrection in the kingdom, right? Um, this is actually what, what Israel's approach is when they move into the promised land. Everything is dedicated to the Lord and to the point where they would even, uh, they would put to death everyone. And this is a huge concern. When people read the Old Testament, they get really, really worked up about these sorts of things as they move in and they dedicate an entire city to the Lord. You've got women and children and things like that. Um, children are, as gruesome as it is, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Um, remember just touching on this briefly, that is the judgment of God coming in on the land and the people at the time. And so that's hard enough for us to understand, but the children are also future grown adults. And that's basically the logic there. It's the same logic here, but Inside the kingdom, there was a different uh, polity or a different policy put in place for God's children, which was everyone dies for their own sins, um, not for the sins of their father. And so he, the author is careful to note for us that he actually did what was right in accordance with um, when, in accordance with the law. Now, remember, though, when he takes the throne, Amaziah has some difficult circumstances that he's coming into. Because for the last like 50 years, Judah has been losing territory. They've been losing uh, basically servants, um, people that would pay tribute to Judah, people that were kind of put under their thumb. We call them vassals, people that would pay tribute to Judah. They've been losing them left and right, and none greater than Edom, which we're going to see in just a minute. But that's one part of it. They lost a ton of land. But then on the other side of it, too, He's coming into the throne when his dad has just been put to death by a group of insurrectionists, some assassins. Not, not the greatest of circumstances to take the throne, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree that's, that's, a, that's a tumultuous throne to step on when people have just killed your father? So what is he going to do? Well, we see in the passage he puts them to death. He kills them. Um, doesn't kill the kids, though. He just kills them. And um, so he's, he's got some, uh, some pretty tough circumstances coming at him. And he sets about to reclaim the territory after he puts his father's uh, assailants to death. He starts to accrue back the territory that, he, that Judah had once lost. We see that in verse 7. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm, and called it Jokfiel, which is its name to this day. And I think I have a map here in just a second. But one thing that he does is he, 
as he sets about to go down into battle, um, he is going to hire about 100,000 men from the northern kingdom to come down and fight with him. Because as he takes the throne, not only is he dealing with insurrectionists, he's dealing with lost territory. What comes with them losing territory and insurrectionists taking, killing the man on the throne? Their military is also not that strong. So uh, Amaziah has to build up the military too. Well, when he first takes the throne, his relationship with the northern kingdom seems to be pretty good because he hires 100,000 men from the northern kingdom to go down and into the valley of, of salt and actually win back the Edomites and put them back under his thumb and win back some territory that he had obviously lost to the Edomites. Now, here's what I want you to see, though. As you're reading 2 Kings, notice we got verse 7 right here. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, took Selah by storm, and called it Jokthiel, which is his name today. The very next verse, uh, you know, it's not hard to deduce, is verse 8, all right? It's going to be on the back of this page, very top. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us look, uh, let us look one another in the face. You know what that means? That means, hey, you and me, buddy, fisticuffs. He's challenging him to a fight, all right? Doesn't that seem weird? They got 100,000 people that they're bringing down from the northern kingdom. Then they fight in the Valley of Salt with the Edomites, and they win back the territory. And now he wants to pick a fight with the north. Why? That seems so strange, doesn't it? Am I wrong here? That seems really weird. So if you're reading 2 Kings and you just read it through, it's very strange. But if you go to 2 Chronicles, there's like the, remember the VH1 behind the music? Remember that? Where it's like, and Leonard Skinner only thought it was Sweet Home Alabama, right? And then like they tell you the behind the scenes story where, you know, oh, we, you know, something went wrong and it wasn't so Sweet Home Alabama. Anyway, so what we find out in Second Chronicles is like VH1 behind the music, all right? You get a little bit of a different, the backstory of what's happening, all right, behind the scenes here. And what we find out is there's some problems in paradise. So Second Chronicles 25, uh, uh, 5 to 12, it says, Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and sent them by fathers, uh, by fathers' houses under uh, commanders of thousands and of uh, hundreds, from all of Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle a spear and a shield. He also hired some mercenaries, 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. He's paying them. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you for the Lord is not with Israel with all these Ephraimites. Remember, Ephraim is also another name for the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? So Amaziah is in a position where he's worried that when he goes down to fight the Edomites, he's going to lose because he just doesn't have enough men. So he hires 100,000 from the north to come down. He pays them, agrees to pay them 100 talents of silver. And the prophet, who is unnamed, we don't know who this is, comes to him and says, 
do you, do you not have faith that the Lord's going to deliver you and that he's going to deliver the Edomites into your hand? Just send the, send the mercenaries. He will not do this if you take these mercenaries with you from Ephraim because they're idolaters and, and they're wicked people. Send them back. Okay. For God has uh, power to help or to cast down. Look at verse 9. And Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do with the hundred talents that I've given to the army of Israel? The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and led out his people and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were all dashed into pieces. Uh, happy ending, right? Uh, not really. It's kind of gruesome. But that's the story anyway. So they, uh, so he has all these people come down and fight and he sends them home. But what we find out is that that really ticked them off. They're not happy about that. And we're going to read about that in just a second. But the men of Israel, men, men of the Northern kingdom go home and they're, they're very much angry about the fact that they've been dismissed. Why do you think that is? They did. What, what is the big deal? What do you think? What's that? Plunder. You can make a... So imagine you're a daily, you're a daily worker. You get hired for a day's wage and you, you're building cabinets, let's say. You go make your cabinets, you get paid your day's wage. That's food for tomorrow. You're a soldier. You go away from your family for who knows how long. Could be a year, maybe, but a long time. Probably not as long as a year, but several months, you're gone. And you defeat the army that you're going up against. Everything the army has is yours. You move through it and you plunder it. This is why, by the way, when the children of Israel move into the promised land, it's such a big deal that they have to burn everything to the ground. They don't get to keep any of it. And when they do keep it, they end up losing the next battle. Remember, Achan gets killed and all this kind of stuff. The reason is that's a big deal is because, hey, look, as children of the Lord, I'm giving this land to you. You're going to have to trust me. Here's all this gold. Here's all this money. Necklaces, jewelry, all kinds of things that's right there before you could melt down and you could use for hundreds of years for your family. It could change your family's fortune and you have to burn it all to the ground. You can't take symptoms. So these mercenaries come in and they're like, woohoo, all right, we're going into battle. They're pretty sure they can roll the, the Edomites. They're pretty sure they can, they can conquer them. And so when they go down there, hey, we kill them, the plunder's ours, in addition to the payment that they get for going down to the fight. So you can actually make a good living doing this. Well, when they go home, they're angered. Just pin that in your head for just a second until we get to what they did, which will help us understand a little bit more of what's going on. So here's what, though, let's go focus back on the battle with the Edomites. Uh, Amaziah and his men, oh yeah, this is the area, this is the map that I was going to show you, just a second. Um, Valley of the Salt down here, which is just below the Dead Sea, all right? This is where they go to meet the Edomites, and they go to repossess the territory, all right? Uh, Serta, which is right down here, which is the territory they repossess, all right? But that's where they meet them, on the battlefield of Valley of Salt. Um, so this is obviously where they came from, Jerusalem, all the way down here, all right? 
So got it? We're good on the on the location here. I think for a second. Now they win, obviously, against the Edomites, but when they collect their spoils, they take something. It's more than just spoils. They actually take the idols of the Edomites. Uh, they take the idols of the Edomites. And they set them up for worship. In fact, Amaziah does this. He sets them up for worship in Jerusalem, no less. Well, the Lord's going to love that, don't you think? I mean, can't you just predict that the Lord's going to love that? Well, again, we go to Second Chronicles, gives us a little bit more information of what's happening here. After Amaziah, this is Second Chronicles 25, 14 to 16, after Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and sent them up as gods and set them up as gods and worshiped them, making offerings to them. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet. We don't know if it's the same prophet or different prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? Just think about it, Amaziah. That doesn't even make practical sense. You took inferior gods, gods that you just rolled, you took and incorporated into worship. That doesn't make sense at all. But as he was speaking, the king said to him, have, have we made a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck, uh, why should you be struck down? Uh, so the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Uh, so needless to say, this is not going to end well for Amaziah, but he doesn't heed the warning at all. And, um, and so it's set up to be really bad, tragic for him in the future. Okay, so he sets up these Edomite idols and, um, and that sets up the end of his basically end of his reign. But back to the Israelite mercenaries. He had sent them home, and on their way back to their homeland, they begin to be, uh, they, they, they start looting and pillaging and killing as they went. Oh, I did. Sorry. There it is. This one. All right. Man, it went, it skipped a couple on me. All right. So, the, the Israelite mercenaries, when he had sent them home before he went down to Edom to fight the Edomites, they go back, and what are they going to do? Well, what they were going to do was go down to Edom and loot and pillage. We've got to go back, and we've got to earn a living for our family. So on their way back, they decide to loot and pillage and plunder the people of Judah, right? They got to walk through Judah to get there. And they actually even, it's obvious that there's some Judean camps inside the territory of Israel that are basically loyal to Judah. And the kingdom of Israel obviously knows this because they visit some of these cities that are in the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom, and they pillage and plunder them and start killing and looting and all kinds of things, their own people, right? Well, that's pretty bad. Okay, so look at, uh, look at 2 Chronicles. Hang on, verse 13 is on the back here. Sorry, he's not in uh, great order here. 2 Chronicles, where am I at? Where's that? I lost verse 13 somewhere. 
Oh, no, there it is. Uh, good grief. Yeah, I got I got Second Kings. Did I not put Second Chronicles on there? What? Second Chronicles twenty five thirteen. Let me read it real quick. I gotta read it because it's it's good. Where did you see that? Oh, do you have it in your you have it in your Bible? Okay, yeah, yeah. Read it out loud again. Yeah. So this is the reason that in Second Kings we go straight from him defeating the Edomites to, hey, northern king, let's you and I talk. And when I say talk, let's fight, right? Because that's what happened. So he, so he is, the assumption is that the Ephraimites on their way back send word, obviously, or somehow communicate back to the king, or at least that this happens with the king's approval. Like, fine, that's fine, right? You can obviously pillage and plunder. Um, well, so Amaziah, it says in 2 Chronicles 25, 17, Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, say, come, let us look one another in the face. Um, to which the king of the north is none too happy. And so obviously, um, Amaziah, did I not, I didn't skip that, there it goes. Amaziah is pretty confident. He's just beat the Edomites in war, and he's now pretty confident my military can take anybody. So I'm going to go to the northern kingdom, and I'm going to give him what for because of what they've just done to our people on their way back home. And so he sends him this message, we're going to come up there and fight, but the northern king by this time has no enemies, right? Ben Hadad's been put, been silenced, and so he's got no enemies, so he's sitting up there just fine. His 100,000 men have come back, and he's actually quite ready to fight, too. He's happy to do it. Well, if you look on in 2 Kings, back to 2 Kings chapter 14, then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoahash, son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoahash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah. This is great. What an amazing reply this is. A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen, so Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Bet Shemesh, uh, which belongs to Judah. Okay, so he sends him this challenge, let's, let's you and me get on the battlefield and let's fight, and the king of the north, Jehoash, sends him, a, sends him a reply, aren't you cute? Well, you've just had a little military victory, and you're full of yourself, why don't you just stay down there in the south? 
and just be happy with beating the Edomites. But he gives him a parable first. And the parable is a thistle, you know how big a thistle is, it's a little pine, a little pine needle, sends to a cedar of Lebanon, Israel, a command, give me your daughter for my son, right? And a beast comes and squashes the thistle underfoot, meaning you're a tiny little peasant kingdom. Don't pick a fight. You don't, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, in other words, right? You, you don't know what you're doing, all right? Just be happy. And so uh, it doesn't work. Uh, he says, look, you, you've got your heart filled up with this glorious victory, and why don't you just sit down there and enjoy it instead of picking on us? So he doesn't. He doesn't listen, and so they meet each other on the field of battle. Now, we also... Um, so obviously, he's, he's subdued uh, Ben-Hadad. Uh, he's recovered some cities that he had lost. So he has even more fighting men. And he tells, uh, he tells the king this in the south, King Amaziah. But then in 2 Chronicles 25, 17 to 19, look at what we find. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to jo- Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us look one another in the face. Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, thistle of Lebanon. We've seen all that, right? Uh, why, why should you do this when, you know, when I could crush you? But then look at what it says in verse 20. But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they had sought the gods of Edom. So in other words, the reason that he doesn't listen to the, to the letter, the reply from the northern king is because the Lord closed his ears, essentially. The author of Second Chronicles kind of clues you in as to the spiritual reality that's going on behind the scenes. Remember we talked about the many are the plans of the kings, the Lord turns the king, king's heart like water in his hand. Again, we find uh, evidence time and time again on every page of scripture that this is in accordance with the sovereign plan of, of God that we see these kings making choices and doing things, and yet, and sometimes foolish things, sometimes awfully sinful things, and yet they are all in the hand of the Lord that he turns as he wishes. And so here again, um, Yahweh closes his ears for the purpose of punishing him. Now, he's not going to kill him. He's going to kill a lot of people, but he's not going to kill him. He is going to punish him. All right, so not only is Judah, oh, by the way, this is the territory right there. I think that's right. Is that Bet Shamish? That should be Bet Shamish, right there, where they meet on the field of battle. It's in the kingdom of Judah, just for geography's sake. All right, Judah is absolutely routed in this battle. Not only are they routed, but Amaziah is taken captive. And the king, Jehoahaz, Jehoash leads him back to, um, or Jehoash leads him back to um, Jerusalem so that he can watch his city fall. The Ephraimites or the Israelites, the northern kingdom, moves into Jerusalem. They destroy the city wall. They go into the temple. They pillage and plunder it for all that it's worth, take home all the spoils. And not only that, but Amaziah 
actually ends up in captivity back in Samaria. So the king is back in captivity. He's in Samaria, the capital city of the north. He's watched his city be plundered and dragged to the ground, all because he decided to take the idols from uh, Edom and set them up for worship. What does that tell you? What does that help you see that the author is trying to get across in this passage? What's that? Right. Yes. All of Amaziah's reign, all the stories about Amaziah are about idol worship. God will not tolerate it at all. So here is his people continually going time and time again after idols. The northern kingdom is constantly seeking them, and God is constantly giving them into the hand of their enemy. The southern kingdom, is as much as they go after them, God is continually giving them into the hand of their enemies. He will not let idol worship stand. He will be the only God in the hearts of his people. And as much as there is temptation to put another God on the throne of our hearts, God will continually come in and discipline his children so that they understand there is no other person that can occupy the throne of your heart but him. That's it. And so he continues to punish them time and time again for exactly this. All right. Now, how, uh, you got me? There we go. Uh, how Amaziah narrowly escapes is uh, a mystery. Um, he's obviously taken back to Samaria as prisoner. And then as 2 Kings 14, 13 to 14 says, but why is he let go? At some point, he is sent back home and actually lives out the remainder of his days somewhere in the southern kingdom. And there's a, obviously a number of possibilities and some of it's speculation, but both the author of Kings and the author of Chronicles helps us to see that Amaziah outlived Joash, the king of the north, for 15 years. So most likely what happens is his captor is, has got him under lock and key in Samaria, and then his captor dies. New king takes the throne in the north and goes, I don't want you. Unlock, go back home. So the guy runs back home. All problems are solved, right? No. Jeroboam too takes the throne. He's worse than his dad was, but he doesn't really want a captive there in, in uh, under lock and key. So he sends him home and he ends up, he ends up being worse. We'll talk about more about him next week. However, he goes home from Samaria and uh, starts to live back in the land, but it ends up being really bad for him because the last 15 years are not made any easier because Jeroboam too takes the throne and he's going to be far worse. He's going to be more powerful and more threatening. So the word is easier there for the blank. I want to go on to the next one. Um, additionally, as he gets down there, he is forced to flee. And this is in about six, uh, 767. So what year is the north taken? Seven. What year is the north taken by, by Assyria? 722. 722, the north is taken by Assyria, right? Okay, 
So we're at 767. In 767, Amaziah is forced to flee Jerusalem, and he made his way to Lachish, um, but was overtaken there, and he was put to death. Now, why was he overtaken? Well, believe it or not, the kingdom of Judah is trying to follow the Lord. Go figure. So if the king won't lead them into worship of God, then the nation will come after the king and judge the king. So Amaziah jumps out of the frying pan of Samaria in, under lock and key, goes down to the south, and he jumps right into the fire where his people are looking to kill him. He's been in prison for some time. They hate him because their kingdom has been utterly decimated, the temple utterly destroyed. And why? Well, no doubt the prophets are telling them exactly why, because you stole idols from the Edomites and set them up for worship in accordance with your king's commands. So when he comes back, they put him to death. How do we know, though, that what they wanted, go to the next slide if you can. There we go. How do we know, though, that what they wanted was not to destroy the dynasty of David, but to actually preserve it? Well, it's because they put his, his son, Azariah, or also we know him by Uzziah, on the throne. And that is in Second Chronicles 25, 27. He says, for, from the time when he turned away uh, from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem and he fled to Lachish, but they sent him to Lachish and put him to death there. And then his son, uh, Uzziah, ends up on the throne. Okay, now you know who Uzziah is. Yes? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on the throne, high and lifted up. So we're getting real close here to some times of some prophets. Now, this is why I think all of this is important. First of all, we see that the Lord cares about idolatry, right? He cares that his people, that on the throne of their heart, that he is the only one there. Whether it's temptations for money, for uh, sex, for fame, for you name it, whatever takes that place that occupies our thoughts, our desires, whatever is that driving force behind why we live and move and have our being, if it's anything other than the Lord, he is going to remove it from the hearts of his children, okay? That's clear. But what we also see is that what's starting to stir up is that the kings of both the north and the south are idolatrous. And they're leading their kingdoms into idolatry. But what's also happening is that when they do, what comes along to the king to let them know what they're doing? Prophets. Yeah. Consequences, yes. Prophets come along as a warning. So when you see all of the, this whole Old Testament filled with these writing prophets, it's no coincidence that those writing prophets begin to really stir up the closer we start to get to the exiles of both the north and the south. As we draw closer to 722, when Assyria is going to come in and take the northern kingdom out, as we draw closer to 586, but also 605, when it really starts, 605, and then it, all, it goes all the way up to 586 when it finally happens, and Babylon comes in and takes the southern kingdom out, Writing prophets start appearing all over the place, letting them know, hey, 
this is not good. What you're doing is sinful. What, what, what's happening in the, in the nation of Israel, what's happening in the, in the, on the throne of your heart is sin, and you need to repent. But you see the temptation, don't you? You see it in the kings. Every single one of them fears that they're going to lose in battle. Every single one of them fears they're going to lose money. But, but what if we take 200,000 men, 300,000 men down to Edom and they beat us? But, but, but what about the 100,000 or the 100 talents I've already paid to the northern kingdom? What does the prophet say? What is 100 talents to the Lord? Nothing. I, I will tell you the temptation to put things on the throne. I'll, I'll tell you what, what some of them have been and continue to struggle with. Children. It, I see this all the time in the, the lives of parents, particularly parents of youth. Comes time where they're, they're getting older and they start making their own decisions. Their opinions start to differ from their parents' opinions. You know, right around the teenage years, they start to, they start to have different opinions than their, than their parents. I don't have teenagers, but I've been a teenager not that long ago, I feel like. And I remember those days having, when I first started, wait a minute, I have some different thoughts than my parents do, and I, I want to act on those. And they start saying things to their parents about church, and, and they start harping on, look, I, I, I just don't like being there. It's boring. You know, it's... The parents are now in the middle of a test. What do you do? You make them go. So hard, right? But the question is, who sits on the throne in your house? Is it the kid? Or is it the Lord? Well, if it's the Lord, then the answer is without question. This is what we do on Sunday. But look, you've taught them for 18 years. Church is an option. Don't be surprised when they treat it as an option. It's going to be an option. The reality is, this is what happens on Sunday. We go to worship the Lord. If frequently, the excuse is, well, you know, I just don't feel like going. You know those times, don't you? And before I was a minister, I had those times. You know, I have to be here on Sunday now. I mean, it's like, there's no choice. So I don't, I don't really get tested in that way. But you feel that, don't you? Everybody feels it. I don't feel like going. It's easier to sleep in. You've taught them that for 18 years. Don't be surprised when they exercise it when they're older. But if you've taught them for 18 years, no, it's not an option. We're not even having the discussion. We're going to church. When you are out of my house, you can do whatever you want. But while you're here, this is what we're going to do. It's always a question of what's on the throne of your heart. And those are the ways you can see it happen. Who's on the throne? For me, kids right up there, health. We went through COVID, man. It was really easy to say, oh, let's stay away from it. 
all. But you know what? Target, that's fine. Parties, that's okay. We can go to those. Church, bridge too far. There's a lot of hard decisions that actually come up. When we're asked the question, what is on the throne of your heart? It's not as easy as just saying, well, the Lord, of course. It's borne out in the decisions that you make on a daily basis. Questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. The churches, they're causing the pandemic. The liquor stores are fine. Yeah. I'm so sick of this. Sorry. <laughs> oh, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what, man. I, the last year and a half has been a I'm a, I'm gonna I, I need to I probably don't need to say anything right now. I don't need to just <laughs> yeah Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. You, like, so there's so many things that I think just revealed itself over the last year. Look, let me, let me put just one qualifier out there. I don't want to die the death of a thousand qualifications here, but I understand there are, there are health concerns. There are also provisions that the church made that allowed people to kind of participate some things loosely from a distance and things like that. I get that. Um, but I also, I think what, what should be revealed to us, hopefully we will see, is just how much we care for our own lives and how much we will do to actually save them. And how little, how little we think of the gathered body, physical gathering of the body, how little we actually think about it. And my, my, I start thinking about, and it, Sorry, this may be a soapbox. I hope it's not, but I think it does reveal idolatry in our own hearts. Um, every time I see a news article of pastor has services and then dies of COVID, you know, all this kind of stuff, it burns me up even more because what if, what if, let's just go back, rewind the clocks a year and a half. Every pastor, let's say, responds the way most of the parishioners responded stays home, locks a door, doesn't go out. What if every pastor responded that way? Churches would have died. I'm not, I'm not tooting any horn, believe me, I'm not. I got my own stuff. I'm not pointing any fingers at all either. But I am saying, most of the time, the, it seemed like there were a very sharp division between people that actually cared about gathering together as a body and saw value in it and people that did not. People that saw value in reading the scriptures together, teaching them, praying through them, doing all those kinds of things and those that did not. And the most of the reason why we didn't 
was because we did not want to die. And I think that's really sad. It's a, it's a tragic commentary on the state of the church today. Why do you think it's so weak? Why do you think we can't share the gospel with somebody? Well, maybe it's because we're afraid, but I don't think so. I think the last year and a half told us it's because we don't believe it. Do we believe that when we die, we're going to heaven or, or not? I mean, at some point, you've got to put your life on the line and just say, well, if it kills me, it kills me. Sorry. That's probably going to get me in trouble with somebody, I'm sure. Yeah, but James, it's no it's no coincidence that the first thing that I, the first thing that we encounter when we teach, let's say, the Book of Jonah, where we started this whole thing, when we first teach the Book of Jonah, the first question that you get is, "Is this real?" We don't believe it. That that's the 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 baseline of it is that the vast majority of the American church doesn't actually believe what they read in the scriptures. They're here, they show up, they sing the songs, they listen to the sermons, and they go home, but they don't actually believe what's written in the pages of scripture. And do we believe it or do we not? I mean, when you're on your deathbed, what do you believe happens next when you close your eyes in death? What do you believe? That's the real question. That's the litmus test. And if what you believe is what's being fed to us from, from the rest of the world, that none of this is true, well, then that's what you'll do. You'll cater every turn because you don't believe it. Well, what if they ask me about Jonah? What if they ask you about Jonah? Tell them what's in the book of Jonah is real. What if they ask me about a snake in the garden? Do we believe animals talk? We're animals and we talk. You got people out there in the world hearing what the whales say and report all that. You're telling me me animals don't talk? (laughs) Why can't we just stand on the ground of Scripture and go, it's true? What do you you guys say about it? 2,000 years ago, a guy raised from the dead. I believe that's true. Yeah. 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 Well, enough soapbox. We got to go. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could be together. Thank you for an opportunity to read your word, to think about it deeply. And I pray that we're moved by it. Um, I pray that really, more than anything, more than soapboxes and all the opinions and things like that, we would just really analyze what's on the throne of our heart, that we would really think about whether or not we believe uh, in the resurrection, whether or not we believe uh, in what your word says and testifies to it. I I hope that even for myself, that 
when, when it's put to the test. When persecution or trial comes, when, when maybe the day comes where we are hauled off to jail, that, that we'll go willingly uh, because we, we trust your word and we're not going to waver from it. And I pray that in that day, if it does come, that you will be there with us, giving us wisdom to what, as to what to say to those who have taken us captive or, or whatever the case may be. But give us the boldness, change the hearts of all of us, not only in this church, in the Church of America. We may, more than anything, want to sing praises to your name and worship you because what we see in the scriptures, what we experience in our own lives is true. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.